Hello, welcome to our noontime webinar. I'm Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we're here to help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, be it a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. For these webinars, we bring experts in from around the country to cover a variety of compliance topics. We are so pleased to have Richard Chasnoff of Verilon today for his presentation on Fair Market Value Primer. Rich has more than 20 years of healthcare experience, including extensive experience in healthcare valuation and executive leadership experience in hospital operations, business development, and planning. He has worked with community-based hospitals and health systems of all sizes, as well as teaching hospitals and for-profit health systems. His experience includes valuation of physician practices and various physician entities, as well as hospitals, imaging centers, urgent care centers, and others, compensation value valuation for employment, practice management arrangements, practice and equity partner management agreements, and equipment arrangements, physician compensation design, including development of incentives, and imaging improvement strategies for hospitals, including acquisition assessments. Prior to joining Verilon, Rich served as senior director for a national consulting firm specializing in healthcare valuation. He also served in executive leadership roles, including vice president for clinical and diagnostic services and vice president for planning at two not-for-profit community hospitals in the Northeast. He has had operating responsibilities for hospital programs, including radiology, oncology, diagnostic cardiology, neurology, and stroke and hospitalist and intensivist programs and was administrative director for a department of medicine. Rich is a member of the National Association of Certified Valuators and Analysts, from which he holds the designation of Certified Valuation Analyst CVA. He holds an MHA and MBA from the University of Minnesota and a BS in Biological Sciences from Cornell University. Before we begin, feel free to download the PDF of the slides in the handout section of your control panel. If you have any questions during the uh, presentation, there will be a contact slide at the end that you will be able to email Richard directly, or you can always contact us with your questions. Your CEU certificate will be sent to you within 24 hours. Thank you so much, and Rich, go ahead. Terrific, well, thank you, Dr. Brooks, and thank you to the entire team at First Healthcare Compliance for uh, supporting this webinar and, and so many others. Uh, this webinar is focused on fair market value, and, and the title demystifying is really uh, demystifying fair market value is really an attempt to, to show that we valuators uh, spend a lot of time talking in code, and we work so closely so often with uh, compliance professionals uh, across the country, and, and we acknowledge that, that sometimes our, our code and our language um, gets ahead of us. So, so my hope is with this with this discussion that we can uh, can make some of that clearer and and help you work more closely with those independent consultants that you use in this in this arena to uh, to help you ask the right questions and understand the work that they're doing just a little bit better. Uh, the, the the path for our presentation today um, will start with the regulatory framework, which I know so many of you are are plugged into each and every day. We'll talk about fair market value, commercial reasonableness, um, the activity around uh, um, around these issues, and and some of the implications. But the most of most of our time is going to be spent on uh, healthcare valuation and how we determine fair market value in healthcare. We'll talk about the underpinnings, and we'll talk about each of the three uh, primary approaches that valuators use, and then we'll talk a little bit about the in, um, uh, interplay between business, the business side and the compensation side, and then hopefully we'll, we'll wrap it all up in a, in a nice neat, neat package at, at the end. So we'll start with the regulatory framework, and, and these are probably terms that you've seen before, uh, the Stark Law, Anti-Kickback Statute, and, and Private Enormant, and they really, to define uh, define the work. Each of them requires the transactions between between physicians and other healthcare entities uh, be consistent with fair market value. Um, Stark uh, has, has civil penalties, as you know, kickback, civil, civil and cr criminal penalties. 
uh, private enormment is an IRS uh, structure, um, and, and uh, organizations' not-for-profit status is, is potentially on the line. And I know that many of you are, are familiar with, uh, with each of these uh, regulatory aspects. So what I wanted to do was, since these three uh, uh, regulations and regulatory uh, uh, constructs all point to fair market value, I thought it would be important to start with a definition of fair market value. And fair market value is, is defined not only in healthcare, but defined in the valuation field, um, whether it's healthcare or any other industry. And this is the definition that, that comes out of the valuation literature. It talks about, um, there are a couple of key concepts highlighted in blue here, but the, the price uh, in cash at which property would exchange hands between a hypothetical buyer and a hypothetical seller. So this word hypothetical becomes, becomes critical, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Acting in an arm's length transaction. Um, in an unrestricted market, neither has a compulsion to buy or sell, and both have knowledge of the facts. So there is a very specific definition, and you may have heard bits and pieces of this as you've worked with evaluators uh, in the past. What you don't see in here is, is the referral concept, because that, that comes in on our next slide from, from the Stark uh, regulations. And the Stark regulations point to fair market value, but go, go just a step further, and they say that, that it's a result of a bona fide bargaining uh, arrangement between well-informed buyers and sellers. So that, those are the same concepts that we, we discussed previously, but here's where it specifically says, it's buyers and sellers who are not otherwise in a position to generate business for the other party. And that's, that's where, it, where this concept, and you've probably heard before, without consideration of the volume or value of the referrals. And that's where, where valuators spend a lot of their time and really work as we try to uh, develop fair market value opinions, really work hard to, uh, to tease out and separate the, the volume or value of referrals from the opinions. And I, I can tell you that I've been in a position to, to have reviewed the work of other valuators, and, and I've seen valuation reports that were brilliantly done um, by valuators who weren't familiar with, with healthcare and the unique aspects of healthcare. And what, what you see when they, when they focus, when they conduct evaluation, is you see the focus here. And I have seen in instances where they have missed that stark definition about volume or value of referrals, and it created a perfectly uh, by-the-book valuation report uh, that was not uh, valid or credible in the healthcare environment. So it really is important to focus not only on the industry definition, but on the stark definition as well. We talked before about hypothetical buyers and hypothetical sellers and and there's this question of you know how hypothetical can you can you get um, because it is important the, the hypothetical aspect is important that that, that physician should not have a name that organization uh, it's not about the name or relationship that can be created however it is important to have hypothetical with the same or similar characteristics so if you're valuing a business you can't say well our hypothetical imaging center might be a $40 million business, whereas our imaging center is a $5 million business. You can't say a hypothetical physician with, with, uh, with 25 years of experience when our target physician has only three years of experience. So it is important as we think about this concept of hypothetical, it's hypothetical, but within, a, within, within certain same or similar characteristics is important as we, as we think about the valuation concept. I also wanted to raise here, and this is the only slide on, on this topic, the concept of commercial reasonableness. Because the, the, the Stark Law requires, and the regulatory framework requires, not only that arrangements be consistent with fair market value, but that they also be commercially reasonable. And what that, the definition is here, it says that arrangements are considered commercially reasonable in the absence of referral, there it is again, and if it would make commercial sense if entered into a reasonable entity of similar type and size and a reasonable physician of similar scope and specialty, even if there were no 
referrals between the parties. So there's this question of what, what is the value, what are the services worth? But what commercial reasonableness asks is should we be paying for those services in the first place? So we, I put together three examples here um, and, and they are not de facto not commercially reasonable, but, but it's just the kind of arrangement that causes evaluator to, to step back and, and say, does this make sense? Does this make commercial sense? If there were three medical directors for a cardiology program, perhaps that makes sense. Perhaps they have, there's a, a medical director for interventional, a medical director for diagnostic, and perhaps a medical director, uh, an overall medical director. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe that makes sense in a large organization. Uh, maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense in a smaller organization. So we would be looking at the various duties uh, of the medical directors, how many hours are required, what, what, what is going on there, and does this make commercial sense? Um, the se our second example, payment for administrative that really aren't, aren't needed. Of course, we should be paying for services that are needed or renting space when you don't actually actually need space. When we think of fair market value, we're always thinking of is it fair market value and is it commercially reasonable? And we think about those two together. As you work with valuators going, going forward, I'd encourage you to, to ask the question, are you thinking about commercial reasonableness? Does your opinion also contemplate and also include a commercial reasonableness opinion? Because the two really, they're they separable, but they're also inseparable at the same time. And the rest of our presentation is going to focus on, uh, on fair market value. Why is this important? Because there's been a lot of enforcement activity. There, there's still arrangements which are suspect and are being um, looked at very, very closely. $1.9 billion was recovered in 2015. Um, uh, 16.5 billion since 2009. Large settlements, uh, which you've probably heard of in other contexts, uh, the DeVita settlements, uh, $450 million for uh, unnecessary administration of, of medicines, um, another $350 million uh, for payments for physicians to induce re referrals, the Adventist um, settlement for $115 million, the North Broward settlement for $69.5 million. Um, these are large, large numbers and have great impact and effect on their organizations. And why go after this? Why, why do this? You know, one, one observation is that between 2011 and 2013, there was $8.10 recovered for every dollar spent on recovery. That's a 710% return on investment. Um, and it, it's only logical that the government would make this investment. Um, why, why is it happening? There, there is an inf increase in enforcement. There are a lot of key TAM suits. Um, they're focused on compensation arrangements. In many re for many reasons, because those compensation arrangements are ongoing, they happen year over year over year, uh, as opposed to one-time arrangements. They've, they've, there have been difficulties with fair market value and commercial reasonableness. There have been uh, issues identified with bonus methodologies, with the way group practices are structured, and whether the, um, the compensation arrangement is meeting the, uh, the requirements under a group practice, the group practice exception under Stark. Um, and, this, and, and the other thing that we're learning is that the simple presence of evaluation is not a guarantee of safety. And, and evidence uh, the 2013 settlement with, with Toomey, there was evaluation in that, that case. And regardless, um, th there was still um, a, a payment made and still uh, found problematic. So what are the implications? As you think about valuators, you, wanna, you want valuators who are, who are not just gonna produce a report, but you want somebody who's independent. Independent is, is important. That's, uh, that's been particularly helpful for all of us, uh, without a doubt. But organizations, many organizations are trying to do this in, inside. And there's always this question of um, whether or not they are fair and impartial. The, the, the ability to be independent, uh, even with even coming to the same conclusion, 
is important in working with evaluators. You want somebody who works in healthcare uh, because the rules are specific and, and different in healthcare. Um, you should expect your evaluator to ask a lot of questions, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. We should understand uh, the, the arrangement, its rationale, why, why are you doing it, and you want to keep the evaluator abreast of changes uh, as, you move, as you move forward. Evaluators are looking for, for atypical deal features that we're looking for. We're, we're, we're sort of looking for the, the needle in the haystack sometimes, and we, we, are, uh, we, we know that everybody is, 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 um, is trying to do the right thing, and, but sometimes the, the momentum of a transaction leads to discussions and takes you down a path that you need to, need to pull back a little bit, and I know that each of you have been involved in those, those situations. And that's what independent evaluators who are looking at the whole thing can, can help, um, help uh, identify. And finally, bad facts make, make bad valuation. Um, it, it really is all about the facts. It really is all about the understanding. And if, if, uh, when you're working with evaluators and, and everybody being on the same page really, really uh, helps. So with that, I want to I talk specifically about about valuation and, and how valuators go about determining fair market value um, for a particular arrangement or a particular business. So, so th these four key underpinnings are really important uh, to us, and, and they are among the first questions that we're going to ask. We, we may not ask them uh, what is the subject, what is the standard, what is the premise, but we are going to seek to understand um, the answer to these questions so that we can determine fair market value. The first thing is, we, first greatest, uh, highest level importance in valuation is understanding what you're valuing. Um, what are the services? What do they include? What don't they include? Who's providing them? Um, if it's an entity being valued, we, we ask the question, uh, is this a a hundred percent interest, or is this a ten percent interest? Because the the valuation approaches uh, and, and assumptions differ. The standard of value is also important. We're focused here on fair market value, and that's usually what we see in healthcare. And I want to distinguish that from investment value, which is one of the other standards. Um, fair market value is the is the independent standard. It's the hypothetical standard. Investment value gets more specific. And one way I, I like to think about that, I, I actually like a real estate example um, in thinking about investment value versus um, fair market value. We're all used to, as we, as we purchased homes, for those of you, you who have, uh, went through an appraisal process and got a, a fair market value or fair value standard on, their, on the house. Um, however, if you were in a scenario where um, the two houses on either side of yours were owned by a particular uh, buyer, and the buyer was particularly interested in that property in the middle. Uh, that buyer may be interested in purchasing that at a higher price than you are willing to pay at fair, at fair market value. And that becomes an example of investment value. Investment value speaks to what can I do with this property once I, act, once I acquire it which is a little bit different from what is it worth in the marketplace generally. So we are focused here, of course, on fair market value. Um, the other underpinning is the, is the premise. Um, typically, we're focused on a going concern, but, but things have a different value if you're trying to liquidate them, particularly with a, with a business. If you're trying to, if you're having the proverbial going out of business sale, um, the, the value of that business is much lower than if the, if the business intends to operate as a going concern on into the future. So we want to understand what's, what's going on and what the premise is. And finally, the date of the valuation uh, is, is also important. Um, as of what date do, would you like the opinion to reflect? Um, and we want to reflect facts known or knowable as of that as of that date. Various arrangements that we're focused on, and we're, we'll, we'll talk about both sides of this, uh, this coin today. There's, and I've, I've already alluded to some of this, there's, there's business valuation, 
which is the sale of an entity, usually a one time, it, it, it's purchased, it changes hands, whether that's 49% or 10% or 100%, um, but the value, the, the property literally changes from one ownership to another ownership, and that can be imaging centers, cancer centers, or, or urgent care centers are common, but, but there are many more, and then of course physician practices. Compensation valuation is the other side of this coin, and compensation valuation is more typically ongoing service arrangements. A lot of different type arrangement types here. Uh, employment, medical director, subsidies all fall into this arrangement type. And then of course you have what, what, what I call hybrid arrangements where there's a, uh, a valuation of a business and subsequent compensation. Um, sometimes we see this, uh, I'm thinking of a physical therapy practice that perhaps is purchased by a hospital and then the former owner of the physical therapy practice uh, enters into a management agreement to manage the physical therapy practice that he once and formerly owned. Uh, that is the hybrid example. Or a hybrid is a physician practice uh, where the physician sells his practice to the hospital and then subsequently employs the physician. And there's a relationship that needs to be drawn between the two and we'll talk a little bit about, about that. There are three valuation approaches. That, that valuators uh, look to. Um, there are many different um, methodologies within each of these approaches, but we, we put each of these three out here. And if, and if you've worked with valuators before, you know you've heard us uh, quickly and without much thought, it's very ingrained, refer to the market approach, the cost approach, and the income approach. Um, and we'll talk about each of these. For, for now, let's just say that, that Evaluators should be considering each of these approaches. You want to think about each. They each have advantages and disadvantages in specific situations. So it would be wrong to say I, we always do a cost approach or we only do a cost approach or we only do a market approach. But then the question is if one is particularly disadvantageous or not reliable in a particular instance, only after considering it should it be, should it be dismissed and it may not be used in the final valuation opinion. So what we'll do over the next few slides is begin to talk about each of, each of these approaches. Um, the market approach first, and the market approach is based on observations in the marketplace. And, and one of the best examples I can give you actually is, is not a healthcare one, it's, it's what is the cost of a car? And, and because we all know the answer to that question in our, in our heads, and many of you are saying, it depends, and we'll, we'll focus on that in a, in a second. But that's the same question. So in, as we move to healthcare, what are the multiples, which is a common term we've heard? Um, what multiples are imaging centers transacting? Or what is the hourly rate for cardiology medical directors? So these are all think questions that we can begin to answer with the market approach. And the key is, is and I'm gonna come back to our car example, the key is identifying a comparable comparable, not just any comparable, but, but one that actually makes sense to use. So, so when I say, what is the price of a car in the marketplace? You, your next questions are, well, is it new or used? Is it big or small? Is it, does it have bells or whistles? Is it a luxury brand or, a, or not? Um, wh what features does it have? You wanna answer all of, all of those questions in order to understand. It's, it's, it's not a fair question to simply ask, what is the price of a car? You have to understand what kind of car. So let's quickly translate that to the value of healthcare businesses. When somebody says to me, what is the price of an imaging center? I have the same questions that I have about cars. Is it, is it a big imaging center or a small imaging center? Translation, what is its revenue size? How many modalities does it have? Which ones? How much volume does it put through? Tell me, tell me more about this center. Tell me about its profitability. So we, we need to understand these questions and only then using a market approach can we ask what do similar businesses sell for? So we wanna find imaging centers. If we're talking about multiples for transactions, we wanna understand 
what are the multiples that similar businesses have? And that's why we want to understand them. And if you've ever talked to an evaluator, we are always very slow to throw out those, those rule of thumb um, multiples, X times EBITDA or Y times revenue that, um, that many hear in the industry from, from say brokers or from others who are in the business of trying to buy or sell these centers. With respect to service arrangements, we again want to find similar businesses. We want to understand if we're asking what the what the value of a medical director is, we, we need to understand what similar medical directors um, are being being paid. Um, similar amounts of time. Physician has similar backgrounds, similar same specialty. So we want to begin to understand things. And for employment, and you those of you who have participated in, in employment uh, agreements, uh, employ, employing physicians, um, you know that there's a discussion of the production being consistent with compensation. That is that a, a 50th percentile producer probably should earn around the 50th percentile and a 90th percentile producer perhaps can, can earn at the 90th percentile, uh, though there is some, some additional complexity to that as well. So what I wanted to talk about on, on the left side, we'll talk about some features of the market approach that as applicable to business valuation. On the right side, we'll talk about compensation valuation. But for, for the market approach, we want to gather, uh, as, as related to businesses, we want to gather market data. We want to understand what those multiples of EBITDA and multiples of revenue actually were. We can, we can learn that from private transaction databases. Uh, there are uh, systems that we have access to that, that record various transactions. The key is getting enough of them to actually make a reasonable judgment or reasonable decision. We can also look to publicly trans, trans, traded companies, though we acknowledge that there's usually a size difference there. Our, our company may be $10 million and the publicly traded company may be in excess of a billion. And how do you connect the two? So the challenges in doing this is, is matching the size and scope. We want to we want to match. We want to create and understand organizations of similar size and scope. We want to match the outlook for those businesses. Was one in a particularly uh, competitive area, whereas perhaps one another was in, a, in an uncompetitive area. So we want to match the, the future outlook, um, and we want to separate reliable data from unreliable. It's very challenging to, to understand which data points um, and from which sources you, you trust the data and from which um, the data may not uh, fit or work with the valuation methodology. Very similar story on the compensation side, on the right side of this slide. Again, we're relying on market data. There are a lot of published surveys reporting annual compensation and hourly rates for various physician specialties. We've looked at our own research. We've talked to and, and understand what's going on in the market. But again, the challenging is, is matching. It's, it's matching the services, matching the quality, matching the capabilities, um, and teasing out the noise in the survey data. As you look at survey data, so, sometimes you see, you see some difficulty. For example, when you look at the, uh, the compensation paid to um, medical oncologists, understanding whether that data has um, uh, infusion revenue uh, embedded in it. And so we try to tease out from the market data uh, what we're seeing. A few examples. Um, this first example using a market approach is employment. And we're, we lay out for you a hypothetical specialty. We lay out uh, various percentiles of data down the, down the left side, 25th through 90th. And you see, can see the compensation growth. The 25th percentile compensation is, is $386,000. And the uh, 90th percentile compensation is $798,000. We see the same for work RVUs and collections. We, we array compensation for work RVU and, and some other data as well. So a few things we're trying to think about. I had mentioned that, that there's a matching. I, ideally, um, median producers would earn, media, would earn median compensation. But let's take a look at the, um, 
the this hypothetical physician down on the last slide who produces 9,500 work RPUs. Well, that's approaching the 75th percentile. Perhaps this physician should earn 75th percentile compensation. But take a look at the collections of 600,000. That's more 25th, more uh, more closely aligned with the 25th percentile of collections. So how do we begin to to use these various data to align? And we want to understand. Um, and, and and the evaluators are trying to to align these these data, thinking about the impact of collections, thinking about the the work RPUs, thinking about um, how how a particular physician's compensation to collections ratio should line up with the benchmark data. And we're trying to triangulate using all of this market data uh, to, to develop the best opinion of fair market value that we, that we can. Um, a, a few thoughts. You know, what, what should the impact of collections be? That's, that's a discussion that we have frequently in the industry. Um, collections are, are impacted by, uh, by the payer mix, by the collectability of accounts, by the underlying uh, contracts and all of that matters and, and our clients are frequently asking us well why does that matter if I'm going to employ them and the, the, the collections are our problem not theirs we just want to focus on on work RVUs but collections strike to to the underlying financial performance of the practice so our, we argue that both are important and I think that's the challenge as you work with valuators is to, to look at all of this data not simply RVUs, not simply collections, not simply compensation per work RVU. And while we have this one slide up, I want to show you one last, one last piece of it. And, and, and that is there, there's a, a tremendous caution in the industry about using compensation work per work RVU outside of the median. And, and I'll show you the way this data works. If you take compensation per work RVU at the 90th percentile, and I've had um, clients uh, indicate to us, well, this is a physician who's producing at the 90th percentile, so he should earn compensation per work RVU also at the 90th percentile. But take a look here. If you take the, this producing at the 90th percentile, 12,100 RVUs, and you apply that to 90th percentile compensation per work RVU of $93, RVU, uh, $93 per work RVU, that's total compensation of 1.1 million, which is much greater than the 90th percentile. So there's a lot of nuances in the data, and it's important to understand and, and talk about all of the various uh, observations that you see as you look at a complete data set. The other example I wanted to share with you was, was for um, on-call services. Our surveys and there's benchmark data that reports um, again by percentile, 25th, median, 75th, and 90th percentile data, and and we we might say and we've had clients say, well, the 75th is is $750, so so I think that that's fair, but the question is who's earning the 75th percent and who's earning the 25th? So some things that, that you want to think about and what we think about in order to determine the best position within this range from say 300 to 900 or even lower than 300 or even greater than 900. We want to think about some of these various factors. How many physicians rotate call? How many, uh, what is the response time re required? How often do they need to call in by phone? How often do they need to come in in person? What is the payer mix? Can the physician bill and collect? All of this helps us determine where in this broad range a particular arrangement lies. So it's not, again, the, the key word here is identifying comparable services, not just sufficient to look at a particular data set. And that's our challenge in the market approach, is identifying services that are, that are comparable. Let's switch gears to the, to the cost approach. And the cost approach talks about the cost to create or replace assets or services. So it, it gets to this question of, you know, what does it cost to build the car? Back to our car example. Or what is the cost of the assets of an imaging center or the cost of, for a cardiology medical director? So if, coming back to cars, because I think that that's 
that's just a, a nice, easy way and disconnected way to think about it. What is the cost of the staff? What's the cost of the, the equipment, the plant, the space, the supplies, the research and development? All of these questions go into the cost of the, the cost of a car. So if we ask this question of, uh, of a healthcare business, such as an imaging center, we want to ask the same questions. What, is, what are the costs um, for an, with thinking about an imaging center? What are the costs of, of uh, the staff, of the various assets they have of the workforce in place? What are the costs associated with the, the assets they've assembled, the leasehold improvements made to their, their facility or the equipment that they've purchased? And then with service arrangements, we also want to think about what are the costs, the underlying costs for those for those services. So again, focusing on business evaluate, valuation on the left, um, identification of the assets is, is among the most challenging uh, in valuing a business. We, we need to reclassify each asset. Um, the book value of the equipment may be, may be $10,000, but the economic value may be $15,000. What do I mean by that? Book, uh, accountants have a defined method, method or methodology for depreciating things, right? You may have heard that, that, that a car depreciates over five years. So an accountant would put that on the books and after five years or seven years, if that, if that were the appropriate standard, the value of that car would be zero. But it, but everybody knows that the value of a seven-year-old car with 10,000 miles on it, if it's of a particular brand, may be worth much more than much more than zero. So it's really identifying um, the economic value. What is it worth in the marketplace, as opposed to what is its what is its book value? And we want to identify all of the assets, those that are that are in front of us, those tangible assets that we can touch and feel and the intangible assets, uh, those that you can't see, such as uh, uh, good, goodwill or the value of a trade name. And then on the right side, we, we talk about um, cost approach for compensation valuation. And again, we're looking at uh, published surveys, which largely are the same surveys as, the, uh, as we use for the market approach. But the challenge is accounting for all of the costs and determining whether those are reasonable. As we thought about our, our car example just a second ago, and we said, well, what is the cost of the plant? What is the cost of the equipment? What is the cost of the space? What is the cost of the staff? You can think about how, how complicated and intricate some of those um, analyses um, may be. And I think this example may, may begin to shed some light on, on this. This is a, a lease services example where there's a lease of, of some equipment and some staff on a part-time basis. Um, so we've got, we're, for the equipment, we're, we've identified the economic depreciation. We're identifying the cost for maintenance, the cost for insurance. Each of those is its own little uh, research activity to make sure we understand those costs. And then we need to determine what the markup is. Um, and of course, all my examples are, are hypothetical. But we need to determine what the markup is. Um, in this case, we're showing 25 to 50% markup on the cost. And of course, the question is, what's that based on? Well, it's based on, it's based on research. It's based on the financial statements for um, those companies that may be in the leasing business. So we want to understand what companies earn to provide equipment. Same thing for the staff. We want to think about the, the, the salaries, the benefit costs, and then any, any markup. And what's the markup intended to cover? It's intended to cover perhaps the risk um, for recruitment or replacement, responsibility for training, responsibility for credentialing. Those markups, we want to reflect the actual services that are tied to the particular arrangement. They, an organization providing staff only and saying there they are, you 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 deal with them, is 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 different or will receive a different markup from someone who provides the staff and says we're going to run the entire HR function, we're going to uh, cut payroll checks, we're going to supervise them, we are going to uh, credential them, we are going to um, 
could conduct their performance appraisals. So, so very different scope of services yield very different markups. So that's our that's our thought process during uh, during the cost approach. And the final approach is the income approach. The income approach looks to the value of the cash flows created for the owner. So what is the, what are the cash flows generated to, to stick with it by car companies or in this case or restaurants? Um, if we're talking about imaging centers, what is the cash flow generated by the imaging center? And by, by logical extension, if we're talking about a compensation arrangement for say a medical director or an employment, what is the cash flow that may be generated by the medical director? And that there is, is inherently problematic, which is why you will only in very select circumstances observe that an income approach is applied to a compensation arrangement. Because this applying an income approach to a compensation arrangement inherently values the referrals, which as we discussed earlier, you can't do. So you shouldn't see an income approach uh, applied, to, uh, applied to compensation arrangements very often. And in fact, when I, when I commented earlier that uh, I had read a very well done and well documented valuation report by a firm that didn't uh, work in healthcare very often, this is exactly what they did. They, they conducted an income approach and it was, it was done exactly the way uh, an income approach is taught in valuation uh, schools and valuation credentialing programs. Uh, however, uh, in in healthcare and due to the the various regulatory regulations that we have, you can't use the the income approach in that circumstance. So we want to be wary of of that. So conducting an income approach is 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 about identifying cash flows and identifying future cash flows you need to think about a number of things what, what's going to happen to volume what will happen to reimbursement to expenses to debt payments to working capital and all of that needs to be considered in developing the, the cash flow and then we think about how we characterize that in today's dollars because a future cash flow a dollar uh, earned five years from now is worth less than a dollar today so if it's earned five years ago and we want it in today's dollars because the sale is going to happen today, we need to discount that. Um, so evaluators spend a considerable amount of time in, in implementing an income approach, determining what the appropriate discount rate is. And it's based on financial indicators and it's based on the riskiness of the investment. But essentially it's asking this question, how much, if we can agree that a dollar five years from now is worth less than a dollar today, the, the key question is how much less? And that's what, what the evaluator is, is considering as, as uh, they put the, the income approach together. So on the business valuation side, uh, we really are focused on the financial forecast. We're trying to understand uh, the, the future cash flows and develop the discount rate, rate which we had talked about. And the challenge is, of course, is, is forecasting the future. Um, some of this is challenging. We, we're forced to ask and answer questions of what, what, is, what do we think the reimbursement is going to be like? How likely are these financial forecasts going to, uh, is it that these financial forecasts are going to materialize? Um, and you know, separating hypothetical from, from actual and what, what's actually going to happen. So all of those challenges on, an, on the income approach side. And of course, on, on the compensation side, on the right side of this slide, uh, there's there's no detail because it's, it's very rare that you'd apply an income approach in a compensation valuation. So there's an example here. It, it's it was hard to put an example on on one slide for uh, for the value, the income approach uh, for a specific entity, but but we gave it a shot. So a couple of concepts here, um, which you may have seen depending on the the um, the various valuation assignments that you may have looked at. Um, there, we have cash flows for the first five years. And then of course you can't project into perpetuity, but the assumption is that, that a business will go on into perpetuity. So we also have a terminal value, which is the value that we expect to continue beyond the five year period. And then we discount each of these. 
The discount rate that we used here um, is 18.3%, and that's built up uh, based on a weighted average cost of capital, which is a, a weighting of the uh, equity risk and the debt risk, um, which includes an assessment of the inherent risks of, of the business. And then there are additional discounts for lack of marketability. So there are a lot of um, there's a lot of nuance here, but I think the fundamental uh, takeaway is is this idea that you're projecting future cash flows and then discounting them back to to, to present day. So theoretically, in coming up with a, a final fair market value opinion, now having looked at all three approaches, theoretically all three approaches should yield the same value. They, they shouldn't be different, but, but they often are. Um, and then the question is to, to the evaluator and to, to those working to, to develop a final opinion is why are they different? Um, and once we understand why we're different, they're different, we can begin to reconcile them. Is there something that, that one particular approach doesn't take into account? Or a place where one particular approach may be unreliable? And in the event that you can identify that, now you understand which approaches are, are better in a particular situation than, than others. And it's, and it's this reconciliation and pulling all three approaches together that ultimately leads to the final uh, opinion of fair market value. And the last comment on here uh, on this slide is as of the valuation date. And that's really uh, an, important, uh, an important question. If you're looking at financial statement data, for example, for an imaging center, um, and you have great data for five years, dating back from 2000 to 2005, and somebody says, well, I want to buy it today, the real question is, well, I can give you an, uh, what, 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 what is our projection, what is our forecast going forward, and how do we, how comfortable are we projecting based on some old data. So perhaps the valuation date is, is an older date, and we need to think about the, the as-of date um, based on facts known or knowable as of that date. Finally, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the interplay between compensation valuation and business valuation, because I think there are some interesting nuances there. Um, and this gets a little bit to practice valuation. So, so we've got a business valuation compensation, and, and let's use an example, the circle in the green, which is evaluation of a practice with subsequent physician employment, um, which puts the, both of these, the, the yellow circle of um, business and practice value, business or practice valuation alongside the compensation valuation um, structure. And I think one thing, you know, this is, this is helpful to think about. So let's talk about this practice. Fundamentally, a physician's compensation when he, he or she is in private practice is whatever they collect from third-party payers or in cash or however their practice is structured. They pay for their space. They pay their staff. They pay for any uh, expenses they have in running their practice. And theoretically, whatever's left after they pay all those expenses are available to them in compensation. And what do most physicians do in this instance? When you look at, at most physician practices, particularly the smaller ones, they take it all in, in compensation. So whatever's available to them in compensation, they take out and that becomes their, their compensation. That's what, what they and their, and their spouse, if that's applicable or, or a significant other, that's what they are thinking of as their, their compensation and, and what their earnings are each year. But the question is, if you're sell, selling that business and the physician takes the same salary um, once they're employed, then how much cash is left to the owner? And the answer is, is there is none. So, so what could what is the value? And valuators are wrestling with this. this is a very hot topic in in uh, in the valuation industry. What is the value of the practice when all of the cash is distributed as compensation to the physicians? Um, some and I would say that there's a range of values. Some, some don't think about it that way. Uh, some think that the the answer may be zero, and some think that the answer is somewhere somewhere in the middle. 
Um, but the question that they wrestle with is if no cash is available, what is the basis to assign value to a practice? And some would say, as I said, there is no basis. And some say this assemblage of assets has an inherent value. You can't say that this collection of things, this, this building and space that's built out and equipment that's in place and a workforce that is trained have, has no value. So that's what, what we wrestle with and that's what valuators are, are looking at. But it, but it inherently becomes a disconnect often between what physicians think their practice is worth and what valuators determine their practice is worth. There is no doubt uh, that, that there is a tremendous amount of goodwill built into practices, that there is a tremendous amount of sweat equity built into practices, particularly those that are long-standing, well-regarded practices in the community. The difference, the, the, the challenge is that, that most of that value is translated to physician compensation going forward. And, and that's the, the challenge that, that we're wrestling with as, uh, as evaluators. So just very quickly to, uh, to wrap up our, our time together, um, there is a unique re regulatory environment in, in healthcare. Um, we, we definitely, it, it affects the valuation. It, it, it is incumbent upon valuators or if, if you don't use an independent valuator, if you do it internally, but it is an, it incumbent upon you to think about that regulatory environment. Uh, we, of course, encourage you to seek an experienced valuator, not only experienced, but qualified in healthcare, familiar with the issues, has seen these various arrangements before. Um, you need to understand the arrangement, uh, understand the services that are being valued. Uh, that becomes the, the first premise. If you don't understand the services, there's no way you can, can understand what they're worth. Um, you should understand the various approaches. Use, use as many approaches as you can uh, and understand why you didn't use certain other ones. Um, understand the underlying assumptions um, and the you know, ultimate basis for the, for the valuation opinion. So hopefully this gave you some context for, uh, for what valuators think about. And hopefully um, as you work with valuators going forward, and, and think about these various arrangements. Hopefully you'll have a, a different perspective or a unique perspective uh, and, and ask some really good questions and challenge your, uh, those who are, who are doing valuation work for you. Um, as, uh, as Dr. Brooks mentioned at the beginning, uh, I can be reached at the contact information below. Uh, our company is Verilon. We, we uh, spend a lot of time in physician uh, compensation and valuation. Uh, but we also have a unique context for it uh, as we, we work um, in the strategy and planning, mergers and acquisitions, clinical transformation, value-based payment, a lot of physician hospital alignment work that we are, we are involved in, which, uh, which puts a lot of context around the valuation work that we, that we do. I will, uh, I will stop there and turn it back to, uh, to Dr. Brooks. Thank you very much, Rich. It was a great discussion. Uh, please use his contact information on the screen to email him questions directly or call him. And uh, if you send any questions to us, we will forward them to him as well. Please visit our website, 1sthcc.com, or to request a demo, please email us at info at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you and have a great day.